أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد After Abu Talib passes away and the Prophet goes to Ta'if and he comes back to the city of Mecca and he realizes that the Quraysh will not stop persecuting the Muslims and slandering the Prophet. They in fact intensify their campaign against the Prophet The Prophet reaches a point where actually it seems for the first time he does a dua on Quraysh, meaning against them. The Prophet would not normally pray to Allah to punish anyone, but imagine their aggression to the point where they were literally stopping the movement of the religion of Islam with their propaganda, with their persecution, no tribe that the Prophet would visit would feel safe from Quraysh to believe in the religion of Islam. They were intimidated. So the Prophet finally does ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to punish Quraysh. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strikes them with a famine to discipline them such that they had to eat cured, you know, dry meat and dried camel blood to that point. First of all, all the vegetation around Mecca dried. Secondly, what, ha- what would happen to their food as a result of the dua of the Prophet was that all the food that would be delivered to Mecca from other villages and cities, the Meccans, the evil Quraysh, they would buy the food. On their way, as they were on their way going home, the food would rot and worms would grow out of the meat of the food. It would just rot. Have you seen like food that's decomposed and rotten? That's what would happen to it. So this famine really struck them. You know, uh, historical accounts tell us the Prophet made the following dua. Allahumma shaddid wat'ataka ala mudar. Oh Allah, you know, tighten your grip on Mudar, Mudar were those famous Arab tribes, وَجْعَلْهَا عَلَيْهِمْ سِنِينَ كَسِنِيِّ Yusuf, and make them years like the years of Prophet Yusuf. What happens in the years of the Prophet Yusuf? Remember the famine, if you're familiar with the story of Prophet Yusuf, seven years of famine, right? So the Prophet he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to strike them with a famine like the famine of the era of Yusuf, seven years of famine and hunger and starvation due to their evil deeds. You know, it got so bad to the point that they would burn bones and eat them, right? And they would eat dead dogs. In fact, they even exhumed bodies from the graves to eat them. That's how bad the famine, you know, became. To the point where even a mother sometimes would eat her child. You can just imagine what happened to these Meccans. So this famine now kept the Quraysh busy from persecuting the Prophet. Before that, all day long, their number one priority was to strike the Prophet. 
attack the Prophet, persecute Muslims. Now with the severe famine, they now had something else to worry about other than Prophet and, and, and Islam. And this gave the Prophet relative freedom, you know, to actually practice his faith, to actually preach the religion of Islam. So this famine continued for a short while until the 11th year after the Ba'tha. So this is about one year after the um, death of Abu Talib and Lady Khadija, peace be upon them. Abu Sufyan, the staunch enemy of the Prophet, the leader of the pagans, along with a number of elite Meccans, they come and see the Prophet. They tell him two things. They tell him, oh Muhammad, you came with the message of enjoining uh, ties with kinship, you know, uh, your people are perishing from hunger, your distant relatives, because remember the Arabs come essentially from the same family tree and you see people starving, you see people perishing from hunger, so pray to Allah to save us. They knew it was from the prayer of the Prophet, so they had to come to the Prophet. In another account, Abu Sufyan and those others, they come to the Prophet and they tell him, look Muhammad, we're at war with you and we, the men, are at war with you. Our women and children are suffering. Why should they suffer? Why is God punishing them? So the Prophet tells them, it's not a punishment for the women and the children. For you men, it's a punishment. For the women and children, it's a test. And through this test, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually compensating them later on in this world and in the hereafter. And really the response of the Prophet sheds light on so many natural disasters that happen in history, so many tragedies, plagues, that you see innocent women and children being killed. And you're wondering where's the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? The Prophet explains that when a calamity strikes people, the evildoers, the criminals, it's a punishment for them. But those who are innocent, it's a means for their compensation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to forgive them on the day of judgment. Maybe later on in this life, Allah wants to give them something good. So Allah will allow that natural disaster, that famine, that disease, whatever it is, to also include women and children as a means to elevate them, as a means to forgive their sins. So it's a blessing for them. You can't say God is punishing children, no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment, He wants to forgive these children, He wants to elevate their status, give them a high rank in paradise. Well, the more they suffered in this life, the more the reward will be on the day of judgment. So the Prophet says, don't call it a punishment for the women and the children, no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will definitely compensate them. In any case, this was supposed to continue for seven years, right? Well, before the first year was over, they come begging the Prophet, get us out of this, ask your Lord to please save us. The Prophet out of his generosity and mercy accepts their proposal. He says, okay. He raises his hand in dua and he prays to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to remove the suffering. Historians tell us that as soon as the Prophet makes the prayer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gathers the rain clouds around Mecca and it starts to rain so heavily, they feared now a flood. 
So the Prophet kind of modified the dua, right? And he said, Oh Allah, hawalayna, around us and not on us. So, you know, the, the rain kind of reduced in its intensity and it became a very peaceful rain and the vegetation grew back and their food became healthy <laughs> once again. So we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the dua of the Prophet and even though they were supposed to be punished for seven years, but because they asked the Prophet to resort to God, the Prophet accepted their proposal. Yes. So that is definitely a valid point, you know, as they say, be careful what you ask for, right? When you ask for something, sometimes you have to think it through and make sure this is in your interest. Because yes, oftentimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not answer your prayer if it's not in your interest to protect you. But sometimes when you insist on something or you really want something, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you what you want. It may not be good for you. So be careful what you wish for or what you pray for. Make sure it is appropriate, make sure, make sure it's good for you. So when Prophet Yusuf made that prayer, Oh Allah, I'd rather be in prison than what these women are inviting me to. Well, he could have worded it in a different way. Oh Allah, just save me from these women. And Allah would have peacefully saved him, right? But he said, I'd rather go to prison. Allah says, okay. You know, because Allah does answer the prayer of the Prophet. When a Prophet is making a request, Allah is not going to say no. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered his prayer and he ended up in prison, but turned out, you know, a bad experience for him. So yes, you know, be careful how you word your dua even, because sometimes Allah wants to test us. So with the Prophet it's not that he, you know, God was really going to drown Mecca, but the Prophet or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to show the Meccans that the clouds gathered because of his dua. So you needed a visible, um, you know, reminder of that. When you see heavy clouds with heavy rain, you know for a fact that it's because of his dua. And then the Prophet asked Allah, okay, you know, we don't want to of course drown. So he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make it a more, uh, you know, a, a better type of rain, more suitable rain. All for the Meccans to truly see that he's connected to Allah. So it's not that the Prophet from the beginning he did not pray correctly, no. There was a reason in how he worded it and how it happened. To show them clearly that this wasn't random. Because someone say, oh you know just randomly there was a, a rainstorm. No, no, it was not random. Because you saw when the Prophet prayed, the clouds gathered. Then when the rain got so intense, the Prophet prayed and, and, and the clouds kind of you know, relaxed the rain. This is all an indication that the Prophet, it was through his blessings. So no one can say it was a coincidence. That's the reason with the dua of the Prophet. Yes.
assuming that for a year they've been praying fervently to their idols, and they could have just gone to one of their idols instead of Rasulullah. But is this then a turning point for them to see, okay, these are all fake? Well, exactly. When you want to see the stubbornness and the evilness of the Meccans, you would think this should have been a turning point for them. This is proof that the one Lord is in charge, your idols didn't help you, and Muhammad is on the right path. Did they believe? No. That's the problem with the Meccans. See, we, we have many narrations or even verses that condemn the pagans, you know. Some people today are like, why is the Quran violent? Why does it promise hell? Look, you're not dealing with average people who are misguided. These are stubborn people. If Jibra'il himself would have manifested himself to them, they would not accept. That's why Imam Ali in Dua Kumail, what does he say about God eternally punishing certain people in hell? See, the Imam is specific. He says that khulud, that eternal punishment in hell is for who? For the mu'anid, for the stubborn one who sees this eye? He says, no, I reject. And these were the Meccans. These were the stubborn Meccans. They saw a sign like that, yet they rejected. And actually Allah warns them in the Quran. Allah told them, and Allah reveals Surah Al-Dukhan, verse 15, إِنَّا كَاشِفُ الْعَذَابِ قَلِيلًا إِنَّكُمْ عَائِدُونَ Allah says, okay, we'll temporarily remove the punishment from you now because of the blessings of the Prophet, but know that you will go back to your evil ways. <laughs> You're not going to learn from your mistakes. You're not going to change course, but I'll remove the punishment. Because one of the qualities of the Messenger of God unlike previous Prophets, is that he was He was mercy for all creations. And one of the characteristics of Prophet Muhammad is that while he was present on earth, because of his presence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not obliterate the Meccans. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states in another verse, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُعَذِّبَهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not fully annihilate them like the people of Ad and Thamud and Nuh and the previous nations, right? Allah sometimes after repeated offenses and stubbornness and rejection, Allah would obliterate them, those evil ones. But with the Prophet that was an exception because Allah says He would not punish them while you're present. So the Prophet tells them, look, the worldly punishment has been lifted from you. Why? Because of my blessings. However, know that on the day of judgment, there will be a very, very severe punishment if you disbelieve now after seeing the signs. So unfortunately, instead of taking that as a turning point and as a stark reminder that they're on the wrong path and this is the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is the path of guidance, they didn't. The minute Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removed the, the famine, they went back to their old ways cursing the Prophet, accusing him, slandering him, persecuting Muslims. They did not learn. What do you do with people like that? What do you do with people like that? And you know, when the Prophet says, no, peop no Prophet has been harassed as much as I have been, this is a part of it. No matter how many signs they would see, they would still be stubborn and they would reject and they would oppress him. But in any case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after they 
come and they ask the Prophet, Allah removes the famine and they go back to their old ways. Now the Prophet at this stage is inviting the tribes, the Arab tribes to Islam. He's still continuing his mission. Meccans, okay, they don't want to believe. He went to Ta'if, they don't want to believe. But there were many Arab tribes in surrounding areas. The Prophet especially during the Hajj season, he would approach those tribes and he would introduce Islam to every single tribe. In fact, every single visitor who would come to Mecca, the Prophet would meet the visitor, he would greet the visitor, he would tell him about the religion of Islam. As soon as the Prophet would do that, Abu Lahab, the uncle of the Prophet, would go to that same tribe, would go to that same visitor whom the Prophet spoke to and he will tell him, look, and sometimes he'd even interrupt the Prophet, look, this guy is a sorcerer, he's a soothsayer, he's a magician, don't listen to him and trust me, I'm his uncle, I know better. I can tell you that he's up to no good, do not believe in him. Imagine Abu Lahab, this evil man doing that to the Prophet And this really stopped many people from joining Islam because they're like, look, I don't know Muhammad really personally, but if his uncle is warning me, I better take caution because his uncle knows him better than we do. And this really dealt a big blow to the religion of Islam. So when you see that the Holy Quran curses Abu Lahab and his wife, Remember what this guy used to do, very evil, yes. So what would happen to those kind of people who were truly confused and they were like, okay, I don't know the Prophet, my own uncle is coming to warn us against it. What happens to those people? Generally speaking, those people who, you know, initially were willing to listen to the Prophet, but then after Abu Lahab did that, they left and abandoned the Prophet. Generally speaking, these people are still liable, why? Because when the Prophet spoke to them and they have the intellect given to them by God and the Prophet made clear to him what the, clear to the, he made it clear to them what the message is, in their heart they knew this was the right path. So even if his uncle is now coming and saying, look this guy is a liar, well that's not an excuse for you to abandon the mission. Look at the Prophet himself, Look at it, his teachings, evaluate his teachings using your intellect. Just because someone is discredit, discrediting the Prophet does not give you the excuse in the eyes of God to abandon the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So generally speaking they were not excused because the Prophet gave them clear signs that this was the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and people generally speaking by the way, whenever you invite someone to something new, it's a challenge, right? It's a sacrifice that you have to make. A new religion, new commitments. People will find any excuse to dismiss you, right? Because people are comfortable in their own methods and their own ways, right? We're all comfortable in our cocoons. The minute you burst the, burst the bubble and you have to embrace something new, new ideology, new commitments, and then the Quraysh are going to now persecute you, right? You don't want to. So when you see Abu Lahab saying that, even if deep down in your heart, you know Muhammad is truthful, but you're like, okay, now I have an excuse. No one will blame me now in society if I don't accept his message because I can just easily say, oh, his own uncle discredited him. So of course I'm not gonna believe in him. So generally speaking, they were not excused. You're excused if you're really confused. 
But when the Prophet himself is showing you the Haqq, there's no confusion. See, one reason why today in Muslim history we have confusion is because we're fighting for 14 centuries to figure out what the Prophet actually said, right? That's the whole fight. What did he say? What did he teach? What did he stand for? The Shia say something, the Sunnis say something, in fact each school of thought says something. We have to go do our historical research to see what the Prophet said. When he's there himself saying it, what confusion is there? No confusion. He's the Prophet of God, connected to Revelation, directly communicating the signs to you. Honestly, that's not an excuse. So generally speaking, most of those people were not excused. They actually just found that as, a, as an excuse not to believe in the Prophet. But remember, those brief encounters the Prophet had with these people did have an impact, long-term impact. In any case, they did meet him, they saw his personality, his akhlaq. You know, th that encounter, that first impression stuck to their minds. And later on when the Prophet moved to Medina and they kept hearing about Islam, that prepared them to eventually accept Islam. So even though initially they rejected, but the Prophet by showing himself and presenting himself to these tribes and people, in the long term it did have an effect. It, it, it made them more ready for the religion of Islam in the future. You know, uh, after the death of Abu Talib, the Prophet ﷺ travels um, to the tribe of Bani Sa'sa'a with Imam Ali ﷺ. And he actually stays there amongst that tribe for 10 days. So the Prophet was very persistent, but to no avail. They were a big and important tribe, but they did not accept the message of the Prophet. He traveled to some other areas, but many tribes in rejecting him, they just you know, tell him, your family and tribe, they know you better. And if they did not follow you, we're not following you. This was like an excuse. You know, interestingly, Ibn Hisham, the historian, he narrates that when the Prophet asked um, Bani Amir ibn Sa'sa'a, that famous tribe, to accept his message, they wanted to bargain with the Prophet. They made an interesting offer. They told him, if we follow you and we become Muslims, after you, will you make us the rulers? What's in it for us? Will we become the rulers after you or no? We'll submit to you right now. We'll mobilize a powerful army to defend you. But after you, will we be the rulers or no? The Prophet waits for revelation and Jibra'il tells the Prophet what to tell them. He tells them, this matter will be decided upon by Allah. He decides who will rule, not me. I don't have that authority. So you know what they tell him? They're like, okay, that's not fair. You want us to sacrifice and have our youth die for you. And then after that, there's nothing in it for us. Forget it. We're not going to support you. So they abandoned the Prophet <laughs> But this incident, which Ibn Hisham narrates and other historians have narrated, is actually a very important uh, hadith or event that demonstrates what? Exactly, that Khilafah and Imamah after the Prophet, according to the very words of the Prophet, must be by the designation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even he himself, the Prophet, has no right to choose. And that's a very important lesson for us. You know, whenever we discuss Khilafah after the Prophet, 
Well, if it was up to the Prophet, because you know what, other schools of thought, they're like, look, the Muslim Ummah, they have the right to gather and select someone. We have that authority. Let me ask you this question, who has a greater authority to choose someone? The people, the Muslims, or the Prophet himself? The Prophet himself. But the Prophet himself, did he have that choice? What does this event demonstrate? He did not have that choice. If Rasulullah doesn't have the choice to appoint, Muslims are going to have that choice? How? Why are they getting that choice? So this is proof that only Allah can decide who the Khalifa is. Wayakhtar, exactly. Yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Qasas states, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He chooses. They don't have the option. When God has chosen something for you, you Muslims, you don't have the khira. Khira means the option. You know when you say akhtar, I choose, I select. The, the, the masdar, the root word is khira or ikhtiar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you don't have that option. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala solely reserves to you know, choose the Khalifa. Of, of this specific incident? Oh, I don't know if it's this specific incident. Um, I would have to look at the uh, tafsir to see exactly what the sabab of the Nuzul is. But the same idea is being communicated by the verse. So this event is confirmed by the Quran. Yes. So don't we believe that the <coughs> before the time of the death, Prophet asked them to bring the pen and paper so that I'll guide you so that you don't have fitna after me. And it's believed that he is going to assign you know, Ali and then the opposite team opposed it. Correct. How does the... Uh, See, whenever we, the followers of Ahlul Bayt state that the Prophet appointed Imam Ali um, that is not to be taken literally. The Prophet did not appoint, he does not have the right to appoint. Whenever we say the Prophet appointed Imam Ali, meaning by the instruction of God, he declared to the people whom God had chosen for them, and that is Imam Ali. So when the Prophet asked them on his deathbed to bring him a piece, a, a, you know, a piece of paper and pen to dictate to them a will, if they implement it, they'll never go astray. He wanted for this to be written on paper that Allah has chosen Imam Ali alayhi salam to be the leader. So it's not him appointing, he's just delivering the message of God. That's what we mean by the Prophet appointed Imam Ali. And that's what he did at Ghadir. And that's exactly what he did at Ghadir, yes. He explained to them that this was by the order of Allah and the verse is very clear. In Surah Al-Ma'idah 67 I believe, that this is an instruction from Allah. بَلِّغْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ from your Lord, it's not your own choice. And if you don't, it's as if you have not conveyed anything. Islam is incomplete. So this incident with Bani Amr bin Sa'sa'a really proves the point that the Prophet does not have the authority to choose. You Muslims you want to choose? Get together at a Saqifah and choose the Khalifa? Impossible. Now another lesson we can derive from this uh, example is the honesty of the Prophet. See, pol political figures, candidates, usually when they want to secure support or votes, they'll make you hear what you want to hear. They'll make promises, empty promises. They just need your support, especially if they're desperate for your support. 
Now the Prophet of course we cannot say the Prophet is desperate for support. When you have Allah, you're not desperate for anybody's support. But if politically we look at it, socially, he was desperate for support. He needed every single support he could get. Every person counted, every tribe counted. And they're making him an offer. Remember, this was a powerful tribe. That if you say right now, you promise us that after you will rule, will be the rulers, we give you our full support now and we'll change the equation. When the Meccans will see such a powerful tribe, they might rethink their stance with the Prophet. The Prophet, if he was an, an average politician, he would have said, yes, of course. And then later you change your mind, big deal. Later you tell them, look, circumstances have changed, now I'm going to Medina, things have changed. And people can try to understand that, right? I mean, how many times does it happen that politicians change their mind? All the time. And sometimes they can be really excused and justified, right? Circumstances can change. The Prophet is honest, he's truthful. He tells them, look, as much as I need your support, I'm not going to lie to you. This matter is not up to me. I can't choose you as leaders after me. It goes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's exactly what Imam Hussain did on the night of Ashura. When you need support on that final night, the Imam was honest with his companions. They're like, he's like, look, the enemies want me only. They want my head. And I've given you permission. You could leave. If you'd like to leave, leave. Which leader does that? Look at his integrity and honor. In that moment, and any other political leader would have, would have lied to his companions. No, inshallah we'll achieve victory, let's stay fighting. No, the Imam told them it's death tomorrow, I have nothing to hide. Tomorrow we'll all be killed, all of you will be killed. So if you don't want to be killed, leave. See the honesty of Imam Hussain That's the path of the Prophet, he's honest. And he's really showing them that, you know, I'm not going to lie just because I want your support. So these are some, you know, very valuable lessons that we learn from the Prophet And by the way, you know, when you have a message like Islam, you're really looking for true supporters. People who are supporting you because they believe in you, not because there's something in it for them after you. Because people who are looking for their own political interests, they're not going to stay loyal to you, right? They join you today just because of power. If that doesn't work out for them, if they find power elsewhere, they're going to abandon you. And so the Prophet is actually teaching us practically, whenever you look for support, look for genuine support. You know, people come and tell you, oh, if you give us power and position, we'll support you. That support is not valuable. That's not true support, and that's not going to really advance your cause. So these are wonderful lessons you know, from this incident of the Prophet visiting this tribe. By the way, when Banu Amr go back to their, um, some of their elders, there was an old man known for his wisdom. He asked them, what happened? You know, you were negotiating with someone, tell me about it. So they told him, yeah, this guy Muhammad from this tribe of Bani Hashim, he asked for our support and uh, we rejected him because he did not promise to give us, you know, the Khilafah or leadership after him, he rebuked them. He told them, that's a shame on you. He is from the line of Ismail and whoever comes from the line of Ismail and he has a prophetic mission, he's truthful and he's shown you signs. You're going to regret it, you should have supported him. So there was one or two maybe wise people in the tribe who actually rebuked them 
you know, for their betrayal of the Prophet, but the majority of the tribe were not interested. If there wasn't in, anything in it for them, they were not interested in supporting the Prophet So we see that at this stage really, no one was joining Islam because of the intimidation of Quraysh and people were just not interested in going at war with Quraysh. So the Prophet really was abandoned during these times and they were very difficult times for the Prophet Next, we're going to address something very important and sensitive in the history of the Prophet Soon after these incidents, so we're now examining the last three years of the Prophet's stay in Mecca. This is now year 11, 12, going into the 13th um, after the Ba'tha, because after 13 years the Prophet migrated to Medina. One important event that happened during these last three years in Mecca was the Prophet's marriage to Aisha. And there is a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about the nature of this marriage, how did it happen, how old she was. Basically, the general narration of Bukhari and Muslim is that when the Prophet was in Mecca, when Aisha was six years old, the Prophet did the aqid on her. So the Katb Iktab, right, as, as some people call it, or the Nikah, as some others call it, which is just the verbal marriage contract. The Prophet marries Aisha, but he does not move with her. Then later on, three years later, when the Prophet goes to Medina, uh, I think it was after the Battle of Badr, or in that first year of the Hijrah, the Prophet, or the second year, the Prophet then marries Aisha at age nine, meaning the marriage is now consummated. So this is the version of Bukhari and Muslim. Now unfortunately today, when you see Islamophobic clips, people talking about the Prophet, slandering him, using derogatory language, and some of you may have seen some you know, very disturbing depictions of the Prophet. You know, the Prophet, he's uh, 50 years old at this time now, and a little girl is, is playing in her house with dolls and she's on a swing and they come and snatch her from her parents and they take her to the Prophet's house. And really these clips have done a lot of damage to the religion of Islam. Um, just imagine someone in the West seeing that and this is you know the Prophet marrying a, a little girl at that age, playing, playing with dolls for God's sake, on a swing. And this really has harmed the image of the Prophet. You know, initially we, we are very disturbed by these clips of course, or these claims. But honestly, let's be very honest, if we look at Muslim books, where did they get, where did they get these, these claims from? Bukhari and Muslim. These are not something they just made up. They're taken from Bukhari and Muslim. So it's very important for us to analyze this alleged marriage with Aisha at this young age to see if this is true or not because these are the actual depictions of Bukhari and Muslim, of how it even happened. I'll, I'll share with you some hadiths, you know, that we find in Bukhari and Muslim. Before we do that, just a few general observations about the age of marriage in the religion of Islam. Because this is also something that has historically um, been used recently, of course, um, you know, as, as a point to attack the religion of Islam to say Islam does not respect the rights of children, 
because, you know, how can you have a girl at age 9, 10, 11 getting married? That's not appropriate. So very briefly, I'll make a few observations on that. First of all, if we look at the society of the Prophet and we look at the world at that time, early marriage was very common. It was very, very common and um, not just in Arabia, even in other parts of the world, girls would get married at a very, very young age. You know, uh, 11, 10, 11, 12, 13, that was very common. There were factors that made this common. Specifically about Arabia, one common factor was that because of the hot climate, actually girls reached puberty faster than they would in northern latitudes. And by the way, this is scientifically proven um, that people, especially specifically girls, with boys it's not that, you know, um, accentuated, but with girls, when it comes to their puberty and the age at which they reach it, in hot climates, when the temperature is hotter, they reach puberty faster. There's science behind it, and I don't want to get into it, but this has been scientifically confirmed. So living in Arabia, you can't compare a girl who's nine to someone who's living in Europe. There's a big difference when it comes to the age, you know, in which they reach puberty. So that's one point. The other point to consider is that in the past, as recent as just the last century really, the average lifespan of people was much, much shorter than it is today. Today the average lifespan is what, 77, 78, life expectancy, right? Go back, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, that was not the average lifespan. People had a much lower life expectancy. In fact, sometimes in Europe, uh, for example, if you like at the end of the 13th century, from like 1280 um, till year 1300, do you know what was the average lifespan in the UK? Well, it wasn't called the UK at the time, in, in Britain, in England. 31. 31. Can you imagine? If you were 31, that's it. You were waiting any minute for death. You were like somebody, a grandpa who's 80 years old these days. That was the life expectancy. So when you're living 30 years, 40 years, and you want to have a family, and you want to have children, it only made sense that girls had to marry fast, younger. Because if you're going to wait till you're 25 or 30 to get married, forget it. You're not going to have children. You're going to die a few years after that. <laughs> so th there were external factors that made societies marry at a young age. And it was very logical, it was very reasonable. I mean, if a girl would not marry at age 12, 13, 14, you know, if she wanted to see her grandkids, forget it. <laughs> you know, that was very rare for her to live that long, to see grandchildren. So really they wanted to have families. And remember another thing, what was the infant mortality rate at that time? See, these days it's very low. Um, most women who are delivering, the baby survives. Back then, you had to have three you had to have three, four, five, six babies before one of them can actually survive. They would die when they were young. They didn't have vaccinations, they didn't have medical you know, treatment of many conditions. So if a girl would not marry at age 11, 12, 13, she would not, she would not really have a chance of even having a child because at least four or five of them would die before she could actually have a son or daughter. 
So that pressed them to marry at an early age. And Islam is a practical religion. If Islam would have said, look, the age of marriage is 18, that's it, you cut off the lineage of people, you stop people from having a family, and the population would have just uh, gone extinct. That would be a violation of people's rights if you were to increase the age of, of marriage. So Islam was a practical religion. Islam said the age of marriage can start at nine, it can with the permission of the guardian. See, this is one reason why the permission of the guardian in Islam is mandatory. Some people today are asking, well, this is discrimination. How come a girl needs her father's permission? Look, when you're 9, 10, 11, you don't know what's good for you. You're a child, right? Even if they were more mature than maybe kids these days, but you're still a child. So you need your guardian to approve the marriage because now your father knows what's good for you and what's bad for you. What's in your interest? He will protect you from being taken advantage of, from being exploited. So Islam didn't say, oh, kids can just marry at age 9, 10, 11. No, it has to be for a valid reason and the guardian has to approve of it. The guardian says, no, this is not good for her. He's protecting her. So when we examine the age of marriage in itself, it was very reasonable. Yes, today you could argue society has changed and certain factors have, have, have changed, okay, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 is too young. But we have to look at this from a historical perspective too. But that's not what you hear in the media. All you hear, oh, this, you know, religion, it's a pedophilic religion, and it's, it doesn't give any rights to children. That's not true. All religions in the past, Judaism, Christianity, all of them, they had similar, you know, ages of marriage. Maryam salam, Lady Mary, according to the Bible or Christian scriptures, she was 12 or 13 when she delivered Isa salam. According to our hadith, she was 10. Now we believe in the virgin birth, but there are Christians who believe she was married to Joseph the carpenter. Well, if she gave birth to Jesus and she was 13, when did she marry Joseph? How can nobody talks about that? And Joseph is 90, Allah, let's give a salawat for that. <laughs> By the way, Imam al-Sadiq in one hadith, he gets furious and he says they have accused Maryam of being you know, with Joseph the carpenter. Of course, we don't accept any of these traditions, but they believe in it. So according to their beliefs, okay, you've got an old man with, with a little girl. Nobody talks about that. Why? You only sing out the, single out the Prophet Look at the kings of Europe. Look at the kings of Europe that they're so proud of, those royal kings. It was very, very common for them to marry girls at a young age. The king would be 30, his wife would be 12. Very common. Very, very common. Five centuries after the Prophet, King John of England actually married Isabella at age 12 or 13. So this was something very common, but you see, you see the media today is singling out the Prophet. Mm -hmm. Yes. Gandhi's wife was 14 when he was young. Yeah, Gandhi's wife was very young. And he was 13. He was 13. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So in any case, that's a separate discussion, but we have to be fair with these historical contexts, you know, to understand the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Having said that, let's really now examine if Aisha was really six when the Prophet said the marriage contract and she was really nine when the Prophet consummated the marriage and moved with her. 
We will mention a number of points that demonstrate Aisha was not nine when the Prophet moved in with her when he married her. Number one, Ibn Ishaq, he lists Aisha as one of the early Muslims to embrace Islam. Remember, we talked about that before. And he specifically states she was the 18th or 19th person to be the Muslim, to be a Muslim. So the 18th or 19th Muslim in early Islam was Aisha. Okay, when did that happen? Those first 20 or 30 Muslims, when did they join Islam? In the very early days of Islam, right? So some narrations tell us in that first year. Maximum in those first three years, you had about 20 or 30 or 40 Muslims. But according to Sunni historians, they believe in that first, they believe in that first year, you already had these 20. So Aisha, according to what Ibn Ishaq narrates, she became Muslim in that first year after revelation. Okay, how old was she when she became a Muslim? When they say somebody became a Muslim, you can't be an infant to become a Muslim, right? You can't be one, two, three, four. Let's say, let's say she was at least six for her to be called a Muslim who understands what Islam is and for her to say the Shahadatain, right? They have a problem with the Imam and the same end when they say he was a child. No? Yeah, the Imam who was 10, who was nine or 10, they have a problem with it. Let's just assume Aisha was six, fine. Let's just say she was six when she supposedly became Muslim. Okay, so if we consider her to be six in that year, then if you go 10 years later, year 12 or 13, when the Prophet made the aqid on Aisha, right, in Mecca, that makes her at least 16 or 17. And if you add three years to that, when the Prophet moved with Aisha in Medina, that makes her at least 19 or 20. So if we take Ibn Ishaq's narration that Aisha was the 18th or 19th Muslim, she must have been, must have been at least 15 or 16 when the Prophet did aqid on her. She must have been, if we take his narration. So that's one point, one clue that Aisha was not that young. She was definitely not six or nine. That's number one. Number two, many historians such as Tariq Dimashq by Ibn Asakir, Majma' al-Zawa'id lil-Haythami, Al-Mu'jam al-Kabir, these are Sunni historians. They have mentioned, they have asserted that Aisha had an older sister by the name of who? Asma'. Asma' was born before the Hijrah by 27 years, before the Hijrah of the Prophet. So how many years before the Ba'tha of the Prophet? Subtract 13. That leaves you with what? 27 minus 13 is 14. So she was born 14 years before Islam, before the Prophet received revelation. And these, and these um, historians have clarified very clearly and they've asserted that Asma was how many years older than Aisha? She was 10 years older than Aisha, right? So if Asma was born 27 years before Hijrah and she's 10 years older than her younger sister Aisha, what year was Aisha born? Seven. Year 17 before the Hijrah. That means when the Prophet received revelation, how old was Aisha? Four. Four. 
right? Because 17 years before Hijrah, that's four years before he received revelation because he received revelation 13 years before the Hijrah. He stayed 13 years in Mecca. So Aisha was four years old when the Prophet received Wahi. Now when did he do, do the Aqid on her? At least 11, 12 years after receiving revelation. In year 11 or 12 of Ba'tha. So we're talking about two years before the Hijrah. That makes her how many years? At least 15 or 16. See, this is clear proof because there is no dispute regarding Asma, Asma's birthday. Asma, her oldest sister, we know, according to all these historians, she was born 27 years before Hijrah. And all these historians, you know, clearly state that Asma was 10 years older than Aisha. That makes Aisha four years at the time of revelation. Which means it would have been impossible for her to have been six when the Prophet did the Aqid or nine when he moved with her. Impossible. It's just incompatible. Mathematically, it's not compatible. Yes. Don't we also have um, many of these saints in these verses that say Abu Bakr had all of his children? Probably exactly. I'll barring, mention that. Probably barring, obviously, Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr, one who was an Ali's adopted child. All the rest of them, they were born in. Exactly. That's another proof. Another proof um, that we can use is exactly the one that you mentioned which, let me see which historian um, stated that. Tabari, Tabari, the famous Sunni historian, right? And he is very respected. He asserts with certainty, not like speculation or his own analysis. He asserts with certainty that all of Abu Bakr's children were born in Jahiliyyah before the religion of Islam. That includes Aisha. So she must have been born before the Prophet received Wahi, which makes her at least how many years old? 12 years after Wahi? At least 12, 13. At least. If we assume she was born a few days before Wahi in Jahiliyyah, that makes her at least 12 when the Prophet did the marriage contract and add three years to that when he moved with her? At least 15. See, none of these numbers are adding up to make nine or six. Impossible. So yes, that is actually another proof. Another proof regarding um, her sister Asma. Historical references assert that Asma died which year? 73 after the Hijrah. So how long did she live? 27 years before Hijrah, she was born. 73 years after Hijrah, she died. How old does that make her? A hundred. Asma really lived a long life. She lived actually a hundred years, which means that you know she was born. This confirms when historians tell us year 73 when Asma died, she was a hundred. This confirms that she was born 70, 27 years before the Hijrah, and she was 10 years older than Aisha, which confirms Aisha's age could not have been six or nine at the time of the marriage uh, to the Prophet. Another proof. And this was interesting, At-Tahawi, a famous Sunni scholar, there is an alleged hadith that the Prophet said, it's a funny hadith, he is trying to justify it, but in justifying it, he indirectly negates the you know, claim that she was six or nine when she, when she got married. There is a hadith, he's trying to justify that hadith. What does the hadith state? There's an alleged hadith that the Prophet supposedly said that only these women achieved completion. 
Maryam ibn Imran and Asiya imra'at Fir'aun. So Asiya and Maryam, they achieved completion from women. And then the Prophet supposedly said, وَإِنَّ فَضْلْ and he says the virtue of Aisha with respect to all other women is like the virtue of Tharid over other foods. Tharid in Arabic was a type of dish or bowl in which you have some bread, some meat and some meat water. I don't know what do you call it in English, a type of meat porridge. Can we say meat porridge? What's a porridge? Stew. stew, meat stew. In Arabic we call it my laham, right? Have you seen some people, you know, actually eat that, right? So it's not like a soup soup, it's, it's like a soup. Uh, it's like a broth with, with meat in it. Now yeah, the Arabs like this food. Uh, the Prophet supposedly in this hadith, he says, my, Aisha, my, my wife Aisha, her status over other women, is like the status of this meat porridge over other foods. First of all, come on, just look at the phrasing of this hadith. Which man would say that comparing his wife to some food that people eat? That's not respectful. Even, you know, if, if, if she was, even for, if for the sake of argument, she was his most beloved wife. That's not how you say it. That's, uh, that's a Bedouin who doesn't know anything would say something like that about his prophet. Not someone like a prophet who's polite, who's cultured, who's uh, in intelligent. You don't say something like that. <laughs> and besides, some, from some scholars have argued, okay, you know, the Arabs had many, many types of foods. Who, ev who even says this was the best type of food for the Prophet ﷺ to make that, uh, you know, uh, to even make that, um, you know, claim about Aisha. By the way, interestingly, Sunni sources narrate that once the Prophet had this same tharid, the same food on a tray in Medina with one of his wives and Aisha, she gets so jealous, she gets up, she takes the tray and she smashes it on the ground. And then in her defense, you know what they say? I swear, I've seen their comments. Haram, she loved the Prophet so much, she was so jealous out of love, she couldn't hold her emotions back. And she would do something like that in the presence of the Prophet. Do you really have respect for the Messenger of God when you do stuff like that? There's people in the room, guests, you take the tray and you smash it like that? You smash it like that in front of the Prophet? Anyways, so Tahawi now, why is he trying to justify this hadith? Because we have Sahih hadiths that state Fatima is the leader of all women and the Prophet favored her over other women. And those Sahih hadiths contradict this hadith that Aisha is the best of all women and she has a great status over all other women, right? So he's trying to resolve that contradiction. What does he say? Listen to this carefully. His justification is maybe the Prophet said this before Fatima became mature, when she was a little girl. And Aisha was, you know, mature. So he said that. At that time, Aisha was the best. Then when Fatima matured, and you know, she reached puberty and she became a woman, then the Prophet said Fatima is the best of all women. That's his justification in accepting this hadith. But what do you realize in making that justification? What pit did he fall into? Exactly. See, Tahawi, he himself, he believes Fatima was 25 years old when she passed away. 
which makes her um, at the time of Wahi two years old. So she was born two years before Wahi according to his analysis. Okay, let's say fine. Let's say Fatima was born two years before Revelation, before Islam. If Fatima when she was a child, Aisha was already a grown-up mature woman, at least nine, right? Because in, in Arab culture, you're a woman when you're nine. If when Fatima is young and she was only two at the time of Wahi, so when Fatima was three, four, five, six, Aisha was what? A mature woman. How old does that make her year 12 of the Ba'tha when Fatima now was 14 years old? How old does that make Aisha? Right? When the Prophet supposedly said this, Aisha must have been at least 9, 10, 11. At least because she was now a grown up woman. Which means Aisha, when the Prophet did the aqid on her, must have been more than 9, 10, 11. A few years more than 9, 10, 11. And we can use that testimony from him to prove that she was not that young. So that's another piece of evidence we could use. Another piece of evidence, Ibn Qutayba states that Aisha died year 58 after the Hijrah. So that's three years before Karbala. And he said she neared 70 years old when she died. How old does that make Aisha? If she's almost 70, year 58 of the Hijrah, when was she born? According to his analysis and testimony. She was born 12 years before the Hijrah, right? Because put 12 and 58, you get 70. She was born 12 years before the Hijrah, which means that first year of Wahi, of Revelation, right? So if Aisha was one year old, one, one years old, when the Prophet received Wahi, if you go 12 years later, when he supposedly did the contract, how old does that make her? At least 12, 13 when he did the contract, the marriage contract, and that makes her at least 15, 16 when he married her, meaning he consummated the marriage. So that's another proof that Aisha could not have been six and nine. Another hadith that we can use, Bukhari narrates that the Prophet said, a girl cannot be married off, cannot be married off until she gives her permission, her full consent. So they asked him, how does she give permission? He said, if she stays, stays silent, and doesn't say no, then that's her, you know, respectful way of saying that she consents to the marriage. Okay, supposedly the Prophet made the contract when Aisha was how, how many years old? Six. How do you get the consent of a six-year-old child, really? The Prophet says you can't marry until you get the consent of the girl. Come on, she's six, what type of consent is she going to give? What, what does she know about marriage? That's number one. Number two, I'll share with you the hadiths that when the Prophet came for the marriage proposal, nobody even asked Aisha. So where is her consent? That's an even invalid marriage according to Sunni sources. And I'm sure they don't want to accept that. Another hadith, Bukhari narrates that Aisha said, when I first started to comprehend. How old do you have to be when you can first start to comprehend and can distinguish events and things going on in society. How old? Well, no, no, I mean, you, we can assume a, a, a young child can have an idea of some events going on. Let's say at least five, right? Definitely not two, three, four. When you're two, three, four, do you know what's, 
the fitness going on in society, somebody has a religion, Quraysh, what they're planning. You don't, you can't comprehend that. So when Aisha says, when I first started to understand and comprehend matters, she must have been at least five. Then she says, so she says, when I first started to comprehend, I saw my parents as Muslims. My father, Abu Bakr, and her mother, Umruman, they were Muslims. And this was during the hijrah of Muslims to Habasha. Historically, when did the Muslims start their migration to Habasha? What year? Five or six. The lowest estimate is five. The, least is, the last is six. Let's say five. For the sake of argument, let's take the lower number. So if Aisha is at least five, when Muslims went to Habasha, right? So how old was Aisha when the Muslims went to Habasha? At least five. Add seven years to that when the Prophet supposedly in year 11 or 12 did the aqid on her. She must have been at least how many years when the Prophet did the marriage contract? At least 11 or 12. And when he married her, add three years to that. So this is also one piece of evidence that demonstrates she was not that young. Now let me share with you some of these uh, hilarious false hadiths. So in Bukhari and Muslim, Aisha says, she's, she herself narrates this hadith, أَتَتْنِي أُمِّي أُمْرُومَان My mother Umruman came to me. وَإِنِّي لَفِي أُرْجُوحَ When I was in a swing, I don't know where they had swings in Mecca back then. وَمَعِي صَوَاحِبُ لِي And I had my little friends with me. فَصَرَخَتْ بِي She yelled at me. فَأَتَيْتُهَا لَا أَدْرِي مَا تُرِيدْ بِي I'm reading the exact words of Bukhari and Muslim. So I came to her not knowing what she wants from me. فَأَخَذَتْ بِيَدِي She took my hand. حَتَّى أَوْقَفَتْنِي عَلَى بَابِ الدَّارِ Until she had me stand by the door of the house. وَإِنِّي لَأَنْهَجُ حَتَّى سَكَنَ بَعْضُ نَفَسِي And I was breathing heavily. You know, my mother's snatching me, taking me, what's going on? Until I calmed down. ثُمَّ أَخَذَتْ شَيْئًا مِنْ مَاءٍ فَمَسَحَتْ بِهِ وَجْهِ وَرَأْسِي Then she took some water, she washed, wiped my face and head with it. ثُمَّ أَدْخَلَتْنِي الدَّارِ Then she took me to the house. فَإِذَا نِسْوَةٌ مِنَ الْأَنصَارِ فِي الْبَيْتِ A group of women were in the house. And they said, قُلْنَا فَقُلْنَا They said, عَلَى الْخَيْرِ وَالْبَرَكَةِ Those women of the Ansar, they said to Aisha, عَلَى الْخَيْرِ وَالْبَرَكَةِ Congratulations! وَعَلَى خَيْرِ طَائِرِ And Aisha does not know what's going on. Then, أَسْلَمَتْنِي إِلَيْهِنَّ فَأَصْلَحْنَا مِنْ شَأْنِي Then she took me and handed me over to those women of the Ansar and they started, you know, um, fixing me and then they took me to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and they handed me over to the Prophet and on that day I was nine years old. That's what Aisha says in Bukhari and Muslim. She was playing on a swing, not knowing what happened. Her mother comes, freaks her out, takes her, hands her over to a woman. Nobody even asks her, right, what's going on? Do you want to go now? Do you not want to go now? She's just traumatized by all of this. So when these clips or these allegations that you know, are Islamophobic, when they depict that really, it's whose fault? It's these ignorant Muslims throughout history who've allowed this nonsense to take place in their books. The Prophet is 53 years old for God's sake, almost 54. 
He's going to come and marry a nine-year-old? Who does that? Who does that? Bukhari also narrates, listen to what Aisha, I'm quoting Aisha here from Bukhari. She says, I used to play with the dolls. I don't know where she got these dolls and swings from back then. Did, was this common in that society? I don't know. I used to play with the dolls in the presence of the Prophet. Remember, she's nine when she supposedly went to his house. She's a little kid playing with dolls. The Prophet is receiving wahi on one corner, his wife is playing with dolls on the other corner. And my girlfriends also used to play with me. So she had even girlfriends into the house of the Prophet playing dolls. When Allah's Apostle used to enter, you know, the room, they used to hide themselves. They get scared. Now the Messenger of God, the guy's 54, his beard is getting white. Obviously they're going to get scared. But the Prophet would call them to join and play with me. It's okay. Come and you can play with my wife Aisha. You know, just hilarious hadiths. Another hadith, listen to what Abu Huraira says. He says the Prophet when he entered Medina and he settled, he asked the people to get him married. In fact, he went publicly and he said, Ankihuni, Ankihuni, get me married, get me married. Jibra'il came to him with some cloth from paradise and he showed him a picture that he's never seen anything like in his life and nothing more beautiful than that face. He tells him, what's this Jibra'il? Jibra'il tells the Prophet, go and marry the person who looks like this picture. So he tells Jibra'il, how do I know who this woman is? He tells him that's the daughter of Abu Bakr Siddiq. You know, and so uh, the Prophet goes to Abu Bakr, he knocks at his door and he formally proposes and uh, Abu Bakr says, I've got three daughters, which one do you want? So the Prophet looks at them and he says, no, that's the picture that Jibra'il, you know, he brought for me from paradise and he married her. Subhanallah, in, in these hadiths, you know, they're trying to exaggerate the status of Aisha, but look at what they're doing to the Prophet. Which respectful, dignified man goes publicly and says, get me married, get me married? Someone does that, wouldn't you lose respect for them? And the Prophet is doing this and Jibra'in, I mean subhanAllah, these stories that they put together is really crazy. And by the way, what you can tell that this is a lie, supposedly when the Prophet was in Medina, he had already done, done what on Aisha? The Aqid, so he already knows Aisha, he's seen her. So what does it mean for Abu Hurairah to say, oh, he's never seen that picture before and he doesn't even know who that person is. He's done aqid on a girl, he doesn't even know how she looks like. What kind of nonsense in the, is this? Abu Hurairah came during the last two years of the Prophet's life. How he's narrating this, God knows who he's narrating this from. But these are the hadiths found in their books. Now by the way, these hadiths, that claim Aisha was nine or six. Who's narrated these hadiths? Primarily who's narrated them? Two people. The first one is who obviously? Aisha herself. She wanted to give the impression that she was so sought after, she was so special, the Prophet was desperate to marry her. He couldn't wait, he had to marry her at nine. So nobody comes and snatches her from him. She gives you that impression. The other one is her nephew, Urwa. Arwa ibn Zubair, her nephew, also made similar claims. No other respected companion or just any other companion ever made that claim. 
not even Abu Bakr, not even Asma, her sister, nobody from the companions made the assertion that Aisha was six or nine when the Prophet married her, no one. She is the sole narrator along with her nephew. You would think such an, uh, I mean, such a known fact would have been narrated by many companions. There's no mention of that. In fact, when you put the historical clues together, she was a lot older. So we come to the conclusion that Aisha could not have been six or nine. Mathematically, historically, this was impossible. She was at least, at least 13 when the Prophet did the aqid on her. Other, you know, we mentioned some sources that indicate she was 14, 15, or 16. But what we know for sure, she was at least 13. And when the Prophet moved, you know, uh, when she moved to the Prophet's house and the marriage was consummated, she must have been at least 16 or 17. Yes, brother. Absolutely, you can see that competition, um, we know, in, in trying to compete with the virtues of Ahlul Bayt. Now, in the story of Imam Ali and Fatima alayhi salam, well, Jibra'il does not bring down any picture, but he informs the Prophet that um, under the throne of God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala performed the marriage contract in the presence of the angels for Ali and Fatima. So obviously, there will be some efforts to try to compete with virtues like that and say, oh, Jibra'il brought, in fact, the hadith says khirqa, and khirqa in Arabic means a rag. I don't know why he brought a rag, but in any, in any case, he brought a piece of cloth from paradise, you know, that has the image of Aisha. So yes, you could see that attempt to compete with the virtues of Ahlul Bayt, definitely. But the way in which it's done, it's, it's very insulting to the Prophet. It's very insulting. How could any Muslim except that the Prophet, subhanAllah, look, they want to make Aisha look special and sought after, but they make the Prophet like some desperate guy in society looking to get married, when it was exactly the opposite. This is Rasulullah, any woman would have married him. He doesn't need to go and beg for people to get him married. People would come and ask him to get married. They do the exact same opposite. No, Aisha was in her house, protected, she was sought after, haram, Rasulullah was walking in the streets looking for someone to get married to. See the damage they've done to the Prophet. We cannot, you know, um, really condemn these Islamophobes without condemning these hadiths in our books. Because the Islamophobe will tell you, look, in the end, you, the majority of Muslims, you believe in Bukhari and Muslim. Do you accept these hadiths or no? And unfortunately, some backwards ex extremist scholars you know, you, you give them these facts, their brain just shuts down. They're like, look, don't argue. This is not something that we can analyze. Bukhari says six, it's six. I don't care about any other clues. They take it as revelation, even though it's doing damage to the Prophet But it's very unfortunate, you know, Aisha, the damage that she really did to the Prophet. And it's not just these hadiths, by the way, if you go to Bukhari, there's a section that Aisha talks about intimate things with the Prophet, honestly no respectful person would, would mention that. Some very intimate things. She goes into details what the Prophet would do, what she would do. She even says things that violate the Qur'an. 
The Quran says, avoid women in their cycle. You know what she says in Bukhari? In Bukhari, the Prophet used to approach me when I was in my cycle. Giving the idea that he was so desperate, even when, he, when she was in her cycle, he couldn't avoid her. What, what, what deen is this? Wallah, what religion is this? You blame these Islamophobes for depicting the Prophet in this heinous way? When these books are filled with this nonsense? We have to defend the Prophet We have to denounce this injustice that the Prophet has been subjected to for 13, 14 centuries. Then we can go talk to these non-Muslims and Islamophobes. We have a big problem, big, big problem. So these hadiths are unacceptable and uh, Aisha was not six or nine. This was just, you know, she had the habit of exaggerating her qualities because, you know, she was jealous of the other Prophet's wives and she wanted to give the impression that the Prophet really liked her. And in Arabian society, you know, the younger you are, the greater your status is. It shows an interest, you know, on behalf of your husband in you. And obviously she wanted to give um, that impression. I'll mention one, one last thing um, about Aisha. I've heard from some of our scholars, they believe upon their research, it's not conclusive, it's a possibility. They believe a lot of these hadiths um, in which Aisha supposedly makes claims like that, you know, with the Prophet, some of the intimate details, some of the things that really are disrespectful to the Prophet. Um, one of the scholars in Qom once told me that he believes Aisha did not make these claims. And these hadith were forged by Muawiyah when he fell out of favor with Aisha to tarnish her reputation. Because initially, Aisha and Muawiyah were good. Later on, Muawiyah turned against Aisha. And by the way, there are historical clues that he killed Aisha. He poisoned her. There are historical clues. We can't say, you know, as a matter of certainty that's what happened, but there are clues. In any case, they started, you know, verbally attacking each other. And uh, Muawiyah even started to persecute Aisha towards, you know, um, the last days of his life. So when it comes to these narrations, some scholars believe Muawiyah would pay narrators and fabricate these hadiths and attribute them to Aisha to make her look bad when he turned against her. This is just, you know, a theory. Um, I don't know how much evidence there is out there to support that. But in any case, if you go to Bukhari and Muslim, these hadiths are attributed to Aisha herself, you know. Sahaba are narrating this hadith directly from Aisha. Yes. Why did the Prophet even So with respect to the Prophet's marriage to Aisha, this is a long discussion as to why the Prophet married her. Um, I suggest, you know, if we have a separate discussion on this, because there are many, many points to make here, inshallah. We can discuss that. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammadin wa alihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa alihi Muhammad.